0: Psalm 88, Psalm 88, and if uh, you don't have a Bible in front of you, um, there are uh, the it is on your prayer sheet there, so you can flip it over, or depending on which way it's turned, the scripture to consider there. Um, we'll start out going through our series of questions. Uh, the first question when we look at an excerpt from bo- a book of poetry is sort of poetic devices, figures of speech, parallel phrases, some of those sorts of ideas that helps us get a sense of what is important or what the psalm is about. Uh, So, for example, if we start in verse 2, we see an example of personification in verse 2. What is that as you look there at Psalm 88? Incline your ear. Okay, we have incline your ear. That's kind of a part standing for the whole of the person. What's the other one? Verse 2. Let my prayer come, yeah. So the prayer come is like the prayer is walking up to God, right? And uh, that's personification. Incline your ear is basically you listen, but incline your ear is a part of the person standing for the whole person. That's another kind of figure of speech. Um, There's a bunch of phrases in verses 3 through 6. My life is drawn near to Sheol, those who go down to the pit, a man without strength, forsaken among the dead, like the slain who lie in the grave, cut off from your hand, put in the lowest pit, in dark places, in the depths. These are all pictures of darkness and gloom and woe, but what are they pointing to? What reality is the psalmist experiencing that they're picturing? They're spot. Yeah, expand on that for me. <laughs> they're having uh, persecution or being tormented by sin. Okay. Experiencing many things that are physical. Okay, and it seems that he is thinking that he is close to what? Potentially close to death, okay? So he has this prayer coming before God. He feels like he's near death, potentially. But in verse 7, he makes it specific, even building on verse 6, that this is, um, it says, Your wrath rested upon me. You've afflicted me with all your waves. What is this? this picture of being in waves or wrath resting upon him judgment judgment by God potentially right and if you have waves rolling over you it's a sensation of what you're overwhelmed and potentially you're drowning in it right so there's this picture of sorry good yeah right (laughs) there's this picture of he feels this burden it's like he's got a lead weight on him he's holding on to an anchor and the waves are closing over his head right that's almost the picture that we have here uh then we see in verse eight um you've removed my acquaintances made me an object of loathing what is that um or even verse nine my eye has wasted away because of affliction what what's sort of the idea that's going on here the eye wasting away is a picture of what? Not focusing or? Like starvation. Potentially starvation. Blindness? Okay. Life can't be okay, yeah, so I think the tears are obscuring his eyes, or he's gotten to the point where he's cried all that he can cry and he's got nothing left potentially both at different points, right? This idea of acquaintances being taken far away from him, it's as though God's picked up his friends, set them far away, and he can't find them, which means he's feeling very alone, alone, right? Uh, Then we come to verse 9, where it says uh, kind of a similar idea uh, to what we see in verse 1 and 2. What's the figure of speech in verse 9? or maybe two of them, depending. Not the, not the I one, we already talked about that, but I have what? Called upon you, Called upon you which is a picture of? Prayer. Picture of prayer, okay, good. And then the second part, I have what? Spread out my hands to you. So that's more of a posture of prayer, right? So the first is the sound of prayer, and the other is the posture of prayer, but both of them are a picture of prayer, right? Because um, you can call out to God with your voice, And you can hold your hands out to God and say, God, I'm I'm calling out to you, right? Um, Then we see in verses 10 through 12, um, sort of this imagery of those who have died. And these questions that basically are asking, can those who are dead praise God? With the expected answer of no, but this idea is... um, Essentially that he can't praise God if he dies and there's different things that he ought to praise about God We come to verse 13 Same kind of idea in verse 2 instead of except in verse 2. It's let my prayer come before you and in verse 13 What is it? It comes before you or it has come before you right Um, Same kind of personification same kind of word picture, but sort of looking back on it as opposed to saying God accepted as I do it. Then we see in verse 14, um, interesting phrase there, reject my soul. When he says reject my soul, what's he basically saying? Rejecting the whole person, right? Not just his soul, but he himself. And hide your face is a picture of feeling like God is not there. Not listening, not paying any attention to you, right? And then we see in verses 15 through 18 a lot of parallels to verses 3 through 8. Um, just being overwhelmed. Um, verse 17, surrounded me like water. So that's a simile, a comparison between his troubles, God's wrath, and just again, drowning, sinking, being overwhelmed. And then verse 18, my acquaintances are in darkness. It's not so much that they're in darkness they can't see each other. It's that they're in darkness from his perspective. He can't see them. They're far away. He feels all alone. So, what are some repeated thoughts then that we see in this psalm? Crying out to prayer. Okay, so we see that in verses 1 and 2, and then again in 9, and then again in 13. So, the crying out to God in prayer, okay? Feeling like God's forsaken him, especially verse 14 very clearly, but kind of that sense all throughout it, okay? What about, there's something about trouble. What's what's his attitude about trouble or sense of it? It seems like he has physical agony. Okay. Yeah, physical agony, that he's weak. He f- continuous trouble, continuous Okay, it's not letting up, right? Okay. Trouble surrounding him and overwhelming him. We see that in verses 3 through 8 and then 15 through 18. Um, and then in verses 10 through 12, there's sort of this grouping of ideas of, I want to praise you, God, but it feels like my time is almost up, and how is this even going to be able to happen, right? Yeah, very very strong sense of rejection throughout it. So, uh, what type would we say that it is? Yeah, pretty clearly a lament, all right? So, a lament was a psalm where someone would express sorrow to God and ask Him to intervene. In contrast, something like a song of trust would say, i have cried out to god and now he's delivered me so i'm praising him and here's why i'm trusting him this is when he's right in the middle of it and in fact unlike some of the laments there's really no resolution we'll talk more about that in a few minutes what are some truths about god from this psalm sandra god hasn't left him but how does he feel about it does he feel like he has yeah god's still there but he can seem very far away. So that's one truth we see about God. Okay, What else? Other truths about God? So God yeah, it's, we notice in verse 6 and 7, you have put me in the lowest pit, your wrath has rested upon me. He sees no, um, no disconnect between his trouble and recognizing that God is the one who at least in this respect has brought it into his life. Okay, yeah, okay, okay, yeah, any other truths about God that are clear from this psalm? There's a lot of truths about God in the book of Psalms, but just specifically from this one. those yeah. We know that's true from other places. This one doesn't necessarily seem... There's no answer from God here, right? No, but you know that God hears his breath. Yeah? You're saying that because... In two places. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. Okay. So he believes uh, that God is available. Right, okay, yeah. So he's believing that God is available. And that's because, as we would see from a lot of places in Scripture, it's clear that God does hear even when we feel like he doesn't, Okay. Yeah, I'm not disagreeing with you, Paul. I just wanted to see where you're coming from. yeah there's a little bit of a this is not me trying to play tricks on you guys this is just looking ahead to psalm 89 i think that there's a reason these are back to back and in psalm 89 which we will hopefully get to next week the context seems to be god's wrath because of israel's sin and someone basically interceding on behalf of the israelites And so in that context, I think that's why we don't see personal repentance because he recognizes not his sin per se, but there is this earnest plea for God to intervene because he recognizes if God's wrath isn't turned away, they're all in trouble, whether or not they're the ones specifically doing the sinning. So if we look at the history of Israel, the Israelites over and over again pursue idolatry, but there's people who are following God even in the middle of that, but sometimes they're receiving the famine and the... um, Enemies invading and the drought and all those sorts of things even at the same time Even though they're faithfully following God we see that like with Elijah and Elisha and some of them so um, Truths about us truths about what we should do or what we should think or whatever in response to all this What do we see Sandra? Yeah, don't stop praying even when it seems like God's not listening right? Okay, it's probably the big one what else? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So there are certainly cases where people don't deserve God's wrath, at least from a human perspective, and are still experiencing great trouble in their lives. Absolutely. Yeah, that's a good point. So we shouldn't stop praying. There's this sense of Maybe a parallel to what Job he continues to call out to God even though he doesn't understand what's going on. Jonathan? So there's like an underlying theme of him struggling with trusting God. Yeah, I think there is. At least in verse 14 we have this this very clear, why do you reject my soul? Do you hide your face from me, right? Yeah. 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 Sure. Yeah. <coughs> yep. Good. Yes, yeah, Sandra? we should remember that you know Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Definitely true. All right, so what I'm going to do now is kind of tie these together in a, in a brief message for you. So um, the title that I put there is, When Will I Hear From You, God? We could also put what we talked about a moment ago, Keep Praying When It Seems God Isn't Listening. Uh, one would be sort of a thing that he's asking, another would be the action and response to it. Uh, I read a book maybe two months ago. And the title of the book was Brass Heavens, What to Do When God Doesn't Answer Prayer. And um, certainly, that's a picture more than it is an exact quote. Um, The idea of it was, if the Israelites went back to idolatry, God was going to basically make the sky like nothing could get through, right? The idea of Brass Heavens, right? but as a picture for how we feel when we pray and it seems like God doesn't answer, it's a very apt picture. And so in that book, it talked about a variety of reasons of why we might feel like God isn't answering our prayers or why God might genuinely not be answering our prayers. Uh, He talked about things like pride. If we come to God in pride and demanding that God do certain things, Uh, if we come to God with Um, lustful ambition saying god give me this thing so i can turn right around and please myself with whatever it is relationship status power money whatever god's not going to give it to you right um there could be an issue of some kind of general unconfessed sin there's something that you know that you're doing that's wrong and you don't want to admit that to god and deal with it with him or with someone else And in that scenario, there is a real sense in which God is not obligated to answer our prayers favorably when we refuse and stubbornly persist in sin. Uh, I'm trying to think of some of the other other ones that it gave. I think those were some of the main ones. Uh, In this psalm, however, despite the fact that there's this description of God's wrath in verse 7, There's no specific statement of I have sinned and therefore that's why God's wrath has come upon me. So is it that he's looking at it the way that some of Job's friends looked at it, which is if trouble comes into your life you must have done something wrong. Or is it, as I'm suggesting looking at Psalm 89, which is also listed as a mascal of Heman uh, 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 one of the Ezraites, right? Uh, that these are sort of paired together to express intercessory prayer on behalf of a nation that overall is deserving of God's wrath, but has certain people in it who aren't, because they're still trying to follow God. Um, And in connection with that, um, we should think about the reasons that we might experience trouble in our lives today. We can experience trouble in our lives today because we have personally sinned and God is using trouble to discipline us and arrest our attention. We can experience trouble because someone near us sinned, and there's often a spillover effect of, of judgment on the people around us. For example, um, let's say somebody goes out and robs a bank and gets arrested. His family didn't do anything wrong, but there's going to be consequences for them when dad's not home and mom has to take care of him and all these other sorts of things, right? So there's, sin affects people around you, not just you. And sometimes it's just a consequence of living in a sinful world. Maybe a particular leader makes a bad decision and that brings a foreign invasion or whatever else. That is not really the the fault of the people individually, it's just sort of a side effect of living in a sinful world where people make sinful foolish decisions or or those sorts of things. In this case, it seems to be either uh, the living in a sinful world or the people around are sinning and so some of that is having an effect on the life of this individual He starts out and essentially he starts out in this way God please hear me we see this in verse 1 O Lord the God of my salvation so this is not someone that has sort of a tentative relationship with God this is someone who is confident that he knows God and belongs to God you're the God of my salvation This is not a new thing that he just started doing in this instant. I have cried out by day and in the night before you. So this is not suddenly, someday, he's never prayed in his whole life, and he says, I'm going to start praying. But this is something that he's been doing. And he's also pleading with God. He's saying, let my prayer come before you, incline your ear to my cry. So there's an expectation that God's going to listen to him. And he lists off a variety of reasons why he wants God to listen, The first is because his life is full of trouble, and he feels like sufficient trouble. Verse 3, my soul has had enough troubles, and my life is drawn near to Sheol. In other words, it's piled on, and it's piled on, and it's piled on, and I don't know if there's too much more that can come into my life before I'm at the brink of death, right? So life is full of trouble, and then I feel near death. Verse 4, I'm reckoned among those who go down to the pit. I've become like a man without strength, forsaken among the dead, like the slain who lie in the grave, whom you remember no more, and they're cut off from your hand. You have put me in the lowest pit and dark places in the depths. If he, he, his state seems so close to death that he's basically, though, he's already there. Then there's this sense that God's wrath is heavy upon him. Your wrath has rested upon me. It's pushed me down. It's weighty upon me and you've afflicted me with all your waves. These waves of trouble are washing over him, right? In the book of Isaiah, which we've been looking at on Sundays, there's these pictures of God's wrath using foreign armies like a wave, just sweeping in like a tsunami and wiping things out, right? That's sort of the picture here. God's wave is coming and overwhelming him, and he has nothing to resist it with. There's a pause, this word selah, at the end of verse 7. And then verse 8 and 9, some would say that those go with the next three verses, 10, 11, and 12. I feel like they go well with what he's already saying here, so we're going to take them with those. And here's two more reasons that he gives for why he wants God to hear him. Because I'm alone. You've removed my acquaintances far from me. You've made me an object of loathing to them. I I am shut up and cannot go out. I would turn to my friends, but my friends have left me because they look and they say, how can this person have so much trouble and still belong to God and still have his life right with God, right? That's basically what Job's friends say. Hey, you've got to have done something really, really, really bad or God would not send you this much difficulty. And there is a sense in which we should always ask ourselves that question when trouble comes into our lives. If I am experiencing great difficulty, is it because I have sinned in some great way? We should always ask ourselves that question because we're sinners being transformed from that sin, and so we need to allow that as a possibility. But we should also equally and emphatically recognize we may be following God like Job, like those that Peter describes, and, and have trouble come into our lives simply because we're following God, because we live in a broken world, or all of these sorts of things. And when we experience that... There are going to come points at which people around us are still not just going to be able to accept that and say, yes, this person is following God, but all this trouble has come in. Got to be hiding something really bad, right? Whatever the exact things were that they were thinking, their precise responses, he's alone. And yet... His final reason for why God should hear him is because I belong to you, God. Verse 9, I have called upon you every day, O Lord. I have spread out my hands to you. Again, this is not something he just started doing that morning. I'm going to pray and see if it helps. It's my last attempt. He's been doing it day after day after day, day and night, all day long. He's been praying and crying out to God, and he's saying, God, I belong to you. Why don't you answer me? So first thing that we see here is, God, please hear me, verses 1 through 9. Second thing we see here is, God, I want to praise you, verses 10 through 12. But it's this series of questions. Will you perform wonders for the dead? Will the departed spirits rise and praise you? God, you usually don't show miracles to the dead. It's not the dead who got to see the parting of the Red Sea, right? It's the living, the people of Israel who are still there. Joseph didn't see it. They were carrying his bones with him, but Joseph wasn't the one who was there experiencing the going through the Red Sea. It was all of Joseph's descendants. Um, He says in the second phrase of verse 10, Will the departed spirits rise and praise you? There's a handful of cases where this takes place. Book of Ezekiel, people who raised from the dead after Jesus' resurrection, um, the, uh, the guy who falls into Elisha's tomb and comes up alive during that battle. There's a handful of examples where this does happen throughout the Bible, right? But very few. As a general rule, once you're gone, your window for praising God is shut, right? So, God, I want to praise you, but I recognize you don't usually show miracles to the dead or have them raised to praise you. However, verse 11, there's things about you that need to be proclaimed, I can't do it if I'm dead. Will your loving kindness be declared in the grave? Your faithfulness in Abaddon, another word for death, all those things will your wonders be made known in the darkness and your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness god people need to know that you have loving kindness that you have faithfulness that you have wonders that you have righteousness and if i die it's not going to be me proclaiming those things so god i want to praise you i can't do it if i'm dead this builds on this idea of when are you going to hear me and when are you going to deliver me and help me and then the last part of it here is god why so long to answer verse 13 but i o lord have cried out to you for help and in the morning my prayer comes before you again i've prayed and i've prayed and i've prayed and i've prayed and i've prayed i keep calling out but you don't answer verse 14 so so what does this mean god O lord why do you reject my soul why do you hide your face from me now some people will say well this is not precisely correct and he shouldn't be talking this way to god because in reality god is everywhere so there's no sense in which god can actually be far away and god never forgets his people so there's no sense in which god actually hides his face from people and my response to that would be the bible uses figures of speech and pictures that we talk about even though from some really precise definition they're not technically true like that the sun comes up the sun doesn't come up it goes it stays in one place the world goes around it right um Is it then false to say the sun comes up? No, that's just how we talk about it, right? Is it false to say, God, you seem really far away? No, because that's how it feels to us, right? Is it false to say, God, why have you hidden your face from me? Because when someone doesn't answer, it feels like they're ignoring you, right? And even though that is not true ultimately in terms of God's omnipotence and God's relationship with his people, it is absolutely true experientially. We go through moments where it feels like God is far away and doesn't care. I keep calling out, but you don't answer. Verse 15, this has gone on for a long time. I take that from verse 15. I was afflicted and about to die from my youth on. There's a sense in which he's been experiencing this for most of his life. Then again, this idea, your wrath seems heavy on me and I'm overwhelmed. I suffer your terrors, I'm overcome. Your burning anger has passed over me. Your terrors have destroyed me. They've surrounded me like water all day long. They've encompassed me altogether. Day after day, month after month, possibly even year after year, he's cried out to God, God has not delivered. When does this take place? Well, the psalm is not dated as to when it took place. However, given the description of what we see in Psalm 89, 89, which is a a parallel kind of psalm, there are descriptions about um, the Israelites seemingly in exile, right? And it seems like from the perspective of the people who are waiting for God's deliverance and fulfillment of His promises to restore people, like we've been looking at in Isaiah. There's a long stretch after Isaiah before they're actually carried away into exile. And then there's some 70 years while they're in exile in Babylon. That's a long time for people to pray and plead for God to fulfill His promise and still get no answer and no answer and no answer and no answer. Now, there were also places where there were years and years where they were under oppression by enemies because there were not, maybe only a handful of people were crying out for deliverance until more of the people cried out for deliverance, like in the book of Judges, God doesn't deliver them. I think this is probably looking, though, toward the exile. So, essentially, you have a lifetime, 70 years, praying, 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 no answer for deliverance. In our modern society, where we both want everything instantly and assume that everything has a happy ending, the prospect of praying your entire life and God never answering that prayer is daunting, and we're like, I want nothing to do with that. And yet, if they are the things that God has said to pray for, if they are for the fulfillment of the promises that God has made, It is worth praying those things even if you never hear that answered. And this is true even in our day when it comes to things like praying for the salvation of people that have for years and years and years rejected God, um, praying for a country to turn to God in repentance that for years and years and years has gone its own way and committed various kinds of idolatry and pride and lust and greed and every sin that you can think of. And yet a lot of people still want to say we have a Christian nation. Not really. So we're tempted to say, well, that's it. Just wait for it all to go down. Or we can have attitude of the psalmist here and say, God, I don't know why it's taking you so long to answer, and I've been praying for this maybe for years, and your wrath seems to be upon our nation, but I'm going to keep praying. So what about you? Have you given up on prayer when it seems like God doesn't answer? I mean, let's be honest. There's a lot of things we pray for like three days and we say, eh, I don't know if it's going to happen. And then I read accounts of people who prayed for things for like 50 years and God finally answered it or God answered it after they were dead or God answered it in the lifespan of their grandchildren. It is worth praying even if you never get an answer to that prayer in your lifetime as long as it's for something that God actually wants you to pray for, right? Like we talked about at the beginning, there are all sorts of reasons that we can pray for things that are wrong. To make ourselves happy, to advance our pride, our reputation, so that we can have a more convenient way to sin. You know, those are all terrible reasons to pray, and we shouldn't pray with those motivations or with those goals. But if it's something God has said to pray for, the salvation of the lost, the encouragement and support of the saints, for His glory generally... We can and should pray for those things every day, even if we never see a really clear answer to those prayers. And so I think this psalm teaches us to keep praying when it seems God isn't listening. Because God is a God who keeps His promises. Because God is ultimately the only one who can fix the situation. He clearly acknowledges in verse 6, 7, and 18 that God is the one who has made him alone and poured out his wrath and made life hard for him. And we're going to see that in uh, Isaiah 42 through 44 when we look at it on Sunday. It is very clear the reason that the people experience difficulty is because they've gone their own way. And so this psalmist either has personally sinned or the people around him have sinned to the extent that God's wrath has come And so if God's wrath is the reason for the difficulty, pleading for God to remove his wrath is the only way it's going to get fixed. So he acknowledges God is the one who's in control of the situation, that God deserves to be praised and he wants to keep doing it, that God certainly has the power to work miracles. We shouldn't stop praying. We certainly cannot handle life on our own. And we ought to appeal to God on the basis of our relationship with him and our desire to see him have honor and praise. And so to sum up even one more time, keep praying.